Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 24th of May, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. Well, things hotting up on a general hospital virus front, uh, vaccine yes. virus front. Yes, uh, David, uh, obviously last week we were showing some statistics uh, with respect to hospital occupancy in England. Um, and uh, well, the BBC has finally caught up with that, it seems, uh, because Swindon's Great Western Hospital under unprecedented pressure is what the headline is. But I haven't seen too many headlines uh, with more general comments about the fact that this is nationwide. No, they're quite on the nationwide aspect, but it's coming out in localities. And I've been speaking to nurses in Scotland and they're reporting exactly the same thing. An interesting report from the BBC, because they talk about this being a completely unprecedented situation. And remember, we're in now late May, so the time where it's normally busy in the NHS over the winter period with the seasonal flu uh, and, and similar conditions has passed. Uh, despite it being unprecedented, there's lots of kind of explanations being offered. Uh, it's the fact that people have been putting off going to hospital. It's the fact that there's social distancing and that reduces the capacity of waiting rooms. All of these things are offered as very unconvincing reasons for why the hospital is so full. And we know from other hospitals, it's emergency admissions and very serious cases that are taking up space. Uh, well, the, the term that was used was acute. Now, uh, it's interesting that they're suggesting that social distancing has something to do with that because, of course, they didn't mention social distancing at all uh, during the winter when they were showing pictures of ambulances queuing outside A&E and claiming that this was because uh, of the pressure being placed on the hospitals by uh, coronavirus. But look, let's have a look at some more stats. This is the Department of Health. Sorry, wrong graphic. This is the uh, Department of Health in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, this is their, they have actually quite a useful uh, statistics website for hospital occupancy, unlike Public Health England. Uh, but anyway, they are showing this graph. And uh, first of all, if we look at the graph uh, to the right hand side, um, the pink area is corona, well, what are being described as coronavirus patients. Uh, the yellow area is uh, other patients. And if anything should turn black, if it turned black at the peak, uh, then that means that basically they have. Uh, more demand for beds than they have beds available. Now, what's uh, quite staggering is the number of beds, total beds available in Northern Ireland seems like uh, 3,031. I understand from the very kind person who sent this through to me this morning uh, that uh, reminded me that there was a massive argument a few years ago when the uh, number of beds in Northern Ireland was reduced uh, from, from 7,000 to around 3,000. Uh, this is for a population of around a million and a half people. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, Quite, I, I'm not sure that that uh, provides total coverage at the best times, but nonetheless, uh, we still we have absolutely full hospitals uh, in Northern Ireland as well as the rest of the UK. So, um, what is the reason for it, David? Uh, BBC suggesting um, people or the hospitals catching up with people that weren't given treat, treatment per, before. Perhaps this is undoubtedly part of it. The fact that GPs aren't doing their jobs, although in Northern Ireland they absolutely are. So it's not. Uh, in GP, GP surgeries in Northern Ireland are open for business. So that's not the reason in that part of the world, uh, even though it might be part of the reason in, in the rest of the UK. But the question has to be asked, what is the impact of vaccine adverse reactions on this? Yes, and this is one of the areas that uh, the government's solving by simply not looking. Because as, uh, as these people go in with 
uh, assorted reactions, which we know uh, are, are certainly being reported as adverse vaccine reactions on the yellow card system, they're not routinely being asked uh, re regarding the vaccination status. The data regarding when the onset of symptoms occurred relative to uh, when the, the vaccines uh, were, uh, were applied is not being gathered. And therefore, that, that information will not emerge from, from official sources. It's simply not being sought. Uh, indeed, uh, and other statistics not being sought. Uh, we should remember uh, parliamentary questions on this, the number of people that have died within three weeks uh, following vaccination, and particularly following the second vaccination, but uh, the government not gathering those statistics, or at least not admitting that they're gathering those statistics, so we can never find out. Uh, but let's move on to uh, biosecurity, biosurveillance rather, uh, because uh, the government is once again pushing this notion that they are testing sewage for traces of COVID-19. Uh, Patrick mentioned this on Friday, uh, but there's a new uh, press release about this. Um, and uh, this is apparently because the government has ramped up genomic sequencing uh, to help rapidly detect outbreaks of variants of concern. Um, so the Environmental Monitoring for Health Protection Program, which is led by the Joint Biosecurity Centre, um, which is a part of the new, newly formed UK Health Security Agency, um, has reached a new milestone of testing wastewater for COVID-19 and variants across more than two-thirds of the population in England. Uh, a new laboratory in Exeter has opened last month, uh, and this is dedicated to analysing wastewater. So um, just in case uh, people aren't quite aware of what this is all about, uh, let's see what the government is saying about it. Wastewater testing is a way that we are screening the community sewage for the presence of coronavirus. Some people show symptoms, but not everybody shows symptoms, but all people who have the virus will swallow it, will cough, swallow, and it passes through them and into the sewer network. And we can collect samples at various points along the sewer network, and we can analyze those for the presence of the coronavirus doesn't tell us how many people necessarily have the virus. It certainly doesn't tell us about individuals, but it allows us to check changes over time and it allows us to make comparisons between different areas of the country. At the lab, the samples arrive and they are concentrated. The viruses are concentrated and purified. We can then make some measurements to see how much coronavirus is there but we then also have some material left over. Um, that material can then go to a sequencing lab, and the sequencing lab can give us even more detailed information on the viruses, including the presence of different variants. So we have samples arriving from all over the country, and we can then get sequence data on different variants from all over the country. Uh, so Brian, that should make you feel much better. Well, it doesn't at all, Mike, because I, I think we can say with a lot of confidence that um, coronavirus in sewage has been known about for several years, well, in fact. Well, hold on a second. Don't, don't preempt me just yet because okay. we're coming to that. Right. Don't, don't worry. I'll, I'll let you get the next bit then before we, we say the government is on another story here, I think. Yes, absolutely. So they're saying that 500 locations around the country is where they're sampling from. Uh, but of course, this isn't new uh, because we reported this last year. Um, and uh, this is what they were talking about. The project has already worked successfully in an area in the southwest of England where sewage sampling data showed a spike in coronavirus material, material despite relatively low, low numbers of people 
uh, seeking tests. And George Eustace uh, had said this at the time, this was back in uh, October, November time, this is a significant step forward in giving us a clearer idea of infection rates, both nationally and locally. Uh, he wanted to say, particularly in areas where there may, may be large numbers of people who aren't showing any symptoms and therefore aren't seeking tests. Uh, sorry, that's a duplicate. So now this is a key point. This was made in the little video clip as well. The whole idea of asymptomatic spreaders, the government keeps trying to push this, uh, but this program, uh, began, as I say, back in June last year, um, and suddenly it's uh, it's absolutely back in the uh, media again when it suits them. Because, of course, when it didn't suit them uh, was earlier than that, back in, I think this was May, or no, this is June, this particular headline was in June, but SARS-CoV-2 traces detected in Barcelona wastewater from March 2019. Well, that's significantly before uh, the alleged first case in Wuhan. Um, now, this particular report, uh, of course, has been absolutely de debunked and de discredited by all kinds of people. All kinds of fact checkers have said that this was nonsense. This was a scientific study, uh, and uh, but that's been debunked. Uh, but of course, that wasn't the only one. And I haven't seen anybody debunk this one because uh, Brazil was finding coronavirus in sewage sample in November 2019. Um, so, as you say, various places around the world finding, uh, apparently finding coronavirus in uh, sewage samples in 2019 before the official narrative says that coronavirus was doing the rounds. Uh, that was all debunked, but now that the government wants to use it to try to look, search every possible nook and cranny uh, for uh, evidence of coronavirus, even though it's not really there, uh, now, now it's suitable as a method, method of discovering it. Indeed. And of course, the other thing we can mention is raw sewage. Um, being pushed out into the sea in the southwest of England, in particular Cornwall, this has been a major uh, problem. So uh, we can ask the question whether infected sewage has actually been pushed out into the sea. And I think Southwest Water has been very reluctant to answer questions from the public about this, uh, including where, where raw sewage has been released in the Carbis Bay area, which of course is where the G G7, G7 is, going is going to take place. So we'd hope to that the world leaders would not be swimming in seawater contaminated with sewage and COVID. That would be a little bit unfortunate for Boris's team. David, I can see you frowning. No, I'm just glad that the UK column um, presenters uh, actually knows, know the difference between wastewater and water. Because when, when it was announced by Matt Hancock, he didn't. He said that the evidence is in the water, and I would have to point out as a civil engineer that water and wastewater are very different things, and it's important to know the difference. Uh, well, I think it probably is indeed. Yeah. Right, thank you for that. Well, we've just uh, moved across onto the subject of Cornwall, and I uh, thought this would be timely to bring in some pictures that we were sent of, of Trelisk Hospital. So this is Royal Cornwall Hospitals Trust, and uh, we thought viewers would be interested in the state of hospitals in UK today. So uh, we're becoming a world leader, apparently, in all, manners, all matters to do with medical and biotech. Uh, this is a little glimpse. And the person said, is this really a hospital or is this some sort of prison? Uh, so this is one view. Here's another with the ambulance waiting. And we can say to people uh, with absolute certainty that over the last uh, week in particular, people have been transported around the country with multiple patients in one ambulance. So no social distancing like there at all. Here's another angle, hospital or prison. We allow our viewers to make the decision on that. 
This is the sort of notices that people are, uh, are faced with, areas closed. There is building work going on, admittedly, but just incredible signage where you're faced with this very harsh environment, COVID notices, locked, bolted gates, but it's saying that there's going to be brilliant care by the leadership team. So uh, that's all looking good. And this is into uh, 2084, as I think I'd call it. So we've got concrete and massive propaganda on the side of the building. And if you're thinking of going there to see this for yourself, well, you better take a fat wallet because the parking charges uh, went up recently. And so it's going to take you, um, it's going to take you 15 pounds, will take 15 pounds out of your wallet for up to 24 hours. So these are pretty serious things, I think. Um, we've also had some emails in thanking us uh, for what we're doing. And uh, following on, uh, this person had actually uh, said that they tried to get in to see their uh, uh, GP, or sorry, they tried to get medical support. And this was the automated response that they'd got back. So it's referring them back to online methods of trying to get medical support. Uh, this was the one thanking us for sanity and clarity, but also pointing out that basically they tried an FOI asking about hospital capacity. The NHS didn't want to answer that and pushed it on to Public Health England. So statistics, it seem, seems, Mike, are being uh, manipulated quite successfully. Yes. Uh, well, look, let's uh, have a look at the uh, UK Columns Yellow Card uh, website. Here it is, UK column, uh, sorry, yellowcard.ukcolumn.org. Um, nothing much appears to have changed there, except there is a new tab at the top, uh, which says graphs. Um, so if you would like to uh, click on that, it uh, will take you to a page with all kinds of graphs on this. First of all, at the top, we've got the uh, graph showing the total doses administered. So uh, the red line there is uh, AstraZeneca, the green line, the solid green line is Pfizer. Um, and the dotted green line is the second dose from Pfizer and the dotted red line, second dose from AstraZeneca. Um, and uh, as you can see, not very much has uh, been uh, coming out from Moderna just yet, not much use there. Um, if you scroll on down, you'll find some more graphs here. First of all, total fatalities uh, on the yellow card system um, and total reactions here. Uh, I thought this was quite interesting because if we look uh, between Pfizer and, uh, and AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca in the red, um, and Pfizer in the green, we find that uh, Pfizer has had much fewer reactions uh, than uh, AstraZeneca. This is partly because there's uh, fewer doses given out, perhaps, but nonetheless, uh, what is that? About 25%, uh, 20-25% uh, of the uh, adverse reactions are coming from Pfizer. Uh, but the number of deaths uh, at, on the yellow card system, much higher for Pfizer. Um, so it seems if you have an adverse reaction, having received the Pfizer vaccine, it looks like the outcome uh, is potentially much worse. Um, but it also seems to suggest, David, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, it seems to suggest perhaps um, that what we're seeing there is not necessary, because the excuse that's being used by uh, many people is that, uh, of course, you would expect to see deaths amongst people that are vaccinated in any case and that the deaths that are attributed to uh, the vaccines, or at least are recorded on the yellow card system, are probably just deaths that uh, you would have seen anyway, had they been vaccinated or unvaccinated. But actually, this suggests something else is going on there, because uh, it seems to me that if, if, you, uh, uh, if, if this was just sort of background radiation, as it were, um, you'd see similar proportions in terms of the numbers of reactions and the number of numbers of deaths. 
Yeah, this, this is a very important thing. Remember, we've had nurses reporting to us that they could tell from the people coming into hospital from their symptoms which of the two vaccines they'd had, Pfizer or AstraZeneca, before they asked them. They could tell from their, from their symptoms. So there are differences, and this has been shown in the statistics. These differences say it's, it's not simply random background events, it's something else. And also, um, that total doses administered graph, that says that um, Pfizer stopped being administered as a first dose uh, in uh, early March. Uh, that's, that's right. There are very, very few uh, new first doses of Pfizer uh, going out since early, early March, but uh, the second doses have uh, ramped up since then. So whether that's because they were diverting these onto the second doses or not, I don't know. But just one final thing on this. If you do hover your mouse over the graphs, you get a little tooltip coming up uh, showing the, the actual figures. Um, so uh, you can hover your mouse over various parts of the graphs and get uh, some idea of the proportions and the, the statistics there. And it's fascinating the amount of information that's now coming out of those MHRA figures, Mike, as a result of that search engine um, that UK Column is now providing. Well, we've obviously upset somebody over the yellow card statistics and the fact that we've been encouraging our viewers to go and have a look at the government's own MHRA yellow card statistic data. Um, what am I talking about? Well, let's bring in the Daily Mail, which is published a couple of days ago, a truly astonishing headline from losing teeth to flatulence, the bizarre reactions Britons claim to have had after getting AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine and how unexplained crying is five times more common than deadly brain clot. Exclusive weird reports, including retirement, taking up smoking and insect bite, drug regulator lists everything the public claim happened to them after vaccine, uh, remember that statement, drug regulator lists everything the public claim happened to them after the vaccine. Deadly blood clots have been reported, but only in tiny numbers. MHRA says suspected reactions are not proven side effects of the vaccine. Um, this is a truly disgraceful article. It's an insult not only to the Daily Mail's readers, but also to anybody who has now suffered an adverse reaction as a result of whether it's AstraZeneca or Pfizer or Moderna or whichever one they've had. Uh, this is the journalist that put this um, disgraceful article up, Sam Blanchard, who's apparently the deputy health editor for the Daily Mail. I found him on Muckrack, which is maybe appropriate. Let's have a look. Um, Britons claim AstraZeneca's corona vaccine has caused them to lose teeth and develop flatulence, the mail online can reveal. So the first thing we see him doing is using schoolboy humour to undermine the whole of the yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data, which is the government's own data. So what he's sneering at here is what the government and the NHS and the MHRA have put out themselves, and he believes that he can smear it so the public won't take the uh, won't have the attention focus on these adverse reactions. He goes on. The reactions include common side effects like headaches, fevers, muscle pains, which have all been reported thousands of times and are quote known to be normal, affecting more than one in ten people and clearing up on their own. So this is misleading. Uh, this is deliberately misleading by Sam Blanchard, as we know that the MHRA 
has not carried out any analysis into the side effects and particularly not at the time they happened. So somebody could have had what appeared to be um, an innocuous headache, but later that develops into something much more serious. And he has no way of knowing that because he's got no data from the MHR, MHRA. Well, and indeed, and indeed the MHRA themselves have said that if you've got a headache which lasts longer than normal, you need to be straight off to hospital. Well, let's carry on through because it gets worse, really. More serious health effects or causes of death are also included, such as stroke, heart attacks and sepsis, although none have been linked to the jab. Well, this is misleading because no MHRA analysis has been carried out, which proves or disproves. But the evidence collected is in the, in the greater case by medical professionals who believe that the side effects have come as a result of the, the vaccine. You think Sam as a journalist would know that it's none has, but anyway. <laughs> well, I don't think he knows very much. This type of monitoring allowed the MHRA to respond quickly last week to claims that the jab causes blood clots. And it could prove that they weren't happening unusually often. Well, this is misleading because the MHRA has conducted no investigation into any of the side effects that they've so far collected and collated. Um, where do we go on? Sorry, we've got a duplicate there as well, obviously. Um, so this is what he didn't tell the viewers. He didn't tell the viewers that the MHRA has actually put out posters saying that reporting the side of COVID-19 vaccine to the MHRA is so important that every report counts because a member of the public who's not medically trained could report something which to a medical professional uh, uh, proves to be very significant. So every yellow card report counts according to the MHRA, but according to Sam Blanchford from the Daily Mail, uh, no, most of it's nonsense. So misleading readers by omission, uh, but let's go deeper into it because actually the reporting of yellow cards is part of the NHS COVID-19 vaccination program standard operating procedure. So if we just move the arrow down, you can see that in their own documentation, it says, please note, you should still report to the MHRA yellow card system. That's for medical professionals. That's not for members of the public. Of the public. So what we've got here is that he's uh, misleading the public again by omission that he hasn't done his homework. David, just before I move on to the serious stuff with June Rain from MHRA, the chief executive herself, um, it's becoming astonishing how bad the reporting is now by mainstream press and the media. It's as if they are simply being fed a line by who? Conservative central office, and then they push this stuff out. It, it is remarkable, um, both in the UK and in America in the VAO system, the number of reports have, has dwarfed anything that's ever been seen before. And in, and in Europe, every, every medical system all across the world that monitors this is reporting a level of adverse reactions uh, multiple times. We're talking about 6,000% increase, this sort of level um, that, that they've ever seen before. And this um, person, uh, is, is his job is to tell the, tell the British people that it's all a joke. Uh, this is appalling. Uh, yeah. The MHRA are putting out warnings about when you should seek, which 
which reactions, including headaches, which was also being rubbished by, I think it was The Guardian, uh, which reactions uh, that if you get them after the vaccine, you should seek urgent medical attention. You think that would be news that he would feel obligated to pass on to the British public, but no. I, no. I, 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 can't, I can't express how, how little I think of that report, Brian. Yes. Well, uh, everything we're showing at the moment is a quote from that report. So let's follow on through with uh, what the boss of the MHRA said alongside Sam Blanchard. So we can now see that Dr. June Rain thinks so little of the British public. She's happy to go in a joint article with Sam Blanchard of the Mail to smear, to effectively smear the intelligence of the British public. So this is what she had to say. She said, the yellow card scheme is a mechanism by which anybody can voluntarily report any suspected adverse reactions or side effects to the vaccine. Well, that's a misleading claim, I believe, because of course, reporting is also a formal part of the NHS standard operating procedures. So yes, it's voluntary for the public, but it certainly isn't for the NHS, but of course she doesn't say so. It's very important to note that a yellow card report does not necessarily mean the vaccine caused that reaction or event. That is true, but the job of the MHRA is to investigate. And we know that uh, they have not investigated any of the yellow card data. We ask for any suspicions to be reported. And at that point, we could say somebody suffering from severe flatulence might actually be suffering from some other medical condition which could ultimately be serious. Uh, the Daily Mail reporter can't answer that question, only a medical professional can. But Dr. June Rain says here very clearly, we ask for any suspicions to be reported, even if the reporter isn't sure it was caused by the vaccine. Reports to the scheme are known as suspected adverse reactions. So she's got truth here, but then basically she's joined in, as I've said, the mocking in the Daily Mail. And on it goes on. Many suspected ADRs reported on the yellow card do not have any relation to the vaccine or medicine. And it's often coincidental that they both occurred around the same time. Well, that's misleading because there's been no formal investigation. The reports are continually reviewed to detect possible new side effects that may require regulatory action. Is she saying there, Mike, that they need to see a new side effect before they're going to take any action? I, I don't know by, by that comment, but it, it occurred to me that maybe they're only looking for side effects that they haven't seen before. Uh, and she says, and to differentiate these from things that would have happened regardless of the vaccine or medicine being administered, for instance, due to underlying or undiagnosed illness. So here's the defensive statement, but no data has been published showing that the MHRA has analysed their own yellow card data. Most things people say in yellow card reports aren't linked to the vaccine at all. But there's no evidence from the MHRA that they've done any analysis. So where is the evidence to back up her claim that uh, they aren't connected to the vaccine? There is no evidence at all. The suspected reactions described in this report are not proven side effects of COVID vaccines, uh, but they're kept on record in case any later do turn out to be linked. Do you see, we're now getting a suggestion that if there's adverse effects that are damaging or killing people, that are known adverse effects, she's not interested in them. She's only interested in new effects. I'll underline that in case any later they do turn out to be linked. 
So no evidence to back up the claim that the vaccines are safe. Uh, but let's have a look at the MHRA website because there's been some dirty work going on here. This is a very interesting section. Encourage people to look at it. Yellow card, please help to reverse the decline in reporting of suspected adverse drug reactions. The date of this published was the 17th of May, 2019. Uh, but if we look at that effectively today, and we go to this section, it says, don't wait for somebody else to report it. It's estimated only 10% of serious reactions and between two and 4% of non-serious reactions are reported. Under-reporting coupled with a decline in reporting makes it especially important to report all suspicions of adverse drug, drug reactions to the yellow card system. That is what was there the first time I looked at it. Now we have an insert and let's read it. This article was published in response to a decline in yellow card reporting in 2018. The reporting rate for adverse drug reactions is variable and can depend on a multitude of factor. These estimates should not be used as indicators of the reporting rate for COVID-19 vaccines, for which there is, quote, high public awareness of the yellow card scheme and the reporting of suspected reactions. Well, this, this is a deliberately misleading section, Mike, which has clearly been added to try and take the sting out the fact that the MHRA has admitted that perhaps only 10% of serious reactions have been reporting. Was there evidence that there's a high public awareness of the yellow card scheme? I haven't seen any particular evidence to support that. Well, all our evidence, Mike, is that the public is absolutely not aware of the yellow card scheme because not even the, MH, uh, the NHS or the vaccine centres are telling people about it. So I'll just bring the lady back in. She said she's confident that there's no linkage between MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data and vaccines. Um, well, she's confident because she's got no intention of investigating what's causing what. So we're going to suggest that the public in the UK cannot trust a word that Dr. Rain says with regard to yellow card data and vaccine safety. But before we leave the subject, let's just add this very quickly. Um, an eagle-eyed viewer uh, noted that the, uh, the Centre uh, for Global Development uh, which has some very interesting people from Obama specialists to British Aerospace under the title of COVID vaccine certificate uh, is apparently building on lessons from digital ID for the digital yellow card. And I found this very interesting because I wondered whether the yellow card data is not being collected for the safety of the UK population, but is being collected as a means of identifying individuals uh, through another level of data collection, uh, because what it starts to talk about in this document is that it's, uh, it's looking at how this is going to affect ID to allow you to travel on trains and air aircraft, for instance. So I felt something rather sinister was building there, and it was rather a coincidence that we have yellow card mentioned. Just before we bring David back in, I, I, I wanted to mention this, Brian, because, uh, and I do apologise for not including the graphics, but, uh, but I ran out of time. Um, on the uh, Pfizer uh, patient information leaflet, or the leaflet that's given after receiving a Pfizer vaccine, it does say on that leaflet uh, that you can report any adverse reactions to um, the MHR8 on the yellow card scheme. But then it says, or alternatively, 
use Pfizer's uh, recording mechanism and it takes you to the, the potential to take you to a whole other website. And the person that sent me that, uh, that uh, the scan of that uh, document said, well, you know, are they trying to divert people away from the, uh, or at least some people are going to not use the, the yellow card system, they're going to use Pfizer's uh, system instead. So, you know, the whole thing, there are many, many questions to be asked, not many answers forthcoming. David. I wonder if Pfizer's system is open to public scrutiny. Uh, no, um, it isn't. Just before we, just before we leave uh, Sam Blanchard, he said um, that the blood clots there was no issue because it wasn't any, there weren't any more blood clots than you'd normally ex expect, and therefore it's nothing to do with the vaccine. It's very odd that the MHRA weekly report doesn't say that. When they're discussing uh, serious blood clots, they say on the basis of this ongoing review, the advice remains that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks for the majority of people. Yeah, that's that's a completely different story. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I'll just uh, interject and ask our viewers and listeners to take the Daily Mail to task. Should the Daily Mail be allowed to put out such a misleading report? Uh, should the Daily Mail be allowed to mock members of the UK public who've suffered severe vaccine adverse effects, adverse effects that have been diagnosed by senior clinical staff inside the NHS. Should Sam Blanchford, uh, Blanchford be allowed to get away with this? Our opinion is no, uh, but a number of emails and polite letters to test him on this would be, I think, very valuable. Uh, but David, what's the picture in the rest of Europe then? Well, this is from What Doctors Don't Tell You. Uh, this is across the EU, the 27 countries left in the EU. 10,000 uh, deaths have been recorded following vaccines and 400,000 serious injuries. Um, so this is, uh, they've received 415,000 reports of serious adverse reactions and deaths from one of the four COVID vaccines. The deadliest vaccines are the mRNA vaccines and um, Pfizer has been associated with uh, 5,368 deaths uh, and Moderna with 2,865. Um, and these two vaccines together uh, amounted to 193,513 reported injuries. So uh, this is the same pattern we're seeing in Britain. Um, very serious and and utterly unprecedented uh, reports of death and serious adverse reactions following the vaccine. Uh, but then uh, what about Japan? This is a, a, a tweet here from Gilad Atzman, uh, who's been uh, studying the, the figures on this very, very closely. Um, and he, he writes, Japan was doing pretty well on the COVID front, but then on the 1st of March, it started to vaccinate itself. Now its health system is on the verge of collapse. The same path we saw in the UK, Israel, Gibraltar, Portugal, and the United Arab Emirates. And you see here that when the vaccine the, the the cases, the, the blue graph here is cases. The cases were in sharp decline. Uh, the vaccine programme started and uh, there was an immediate turn up and the number of cases and the number of deaths uh, spiked once again, a pattern we've seen over and over. Uh, yes. Now, uh, allegations that the CDC uh, is manipulating the data uh, to prop up vaccine effectiveness. This is this is a, a it's an excellent article by by Kit Knightley in in Off Guardian. It's absolutely vital reading, and it's it's astonishing stuff. So the the, the headline here, um, you know, this is ma manipulating data, and they continue. 
Uh, new policies will artificially deflate breakthrough infections in the vaccinated. So they're, they're defining breakthrough infections as people who've been fully vaccinated but still get COVID. While the old rules continue to inflate the case numbers in the unvaccinated. Uh, so they, they explain here, essentially COVID has uh, long been shown uh, to be entirely an entirely creative pandemic narrative built on two key factors. False positive tests from the unreliable PCR tests and inflated case count uh, using an incredibly broad definition of a COVID case. This is exactly correct. And uh, they continue. Um, without these two policies, there would never have been an appreciable pandemic at all. Now the CDC has enacted two policy changes. Firstly, they are lowering the CT value, that's the number of cycles when t uh, for the PCR test, when testing samples from suspected breakthrough infections. So they quote here from the CDC, for cases with a known RT-PCR cycle threshold CT value, submit only specimens with a CT value less than or equal to 28. It's generally tested up to 40 cycles in the UK, by the way. Less than or equal to 28 to the CDC for sequencing. Um, and uh, they say explain that it's, it's not feasible to sequence with higher cycles than that. Uh, the off-guarding continues. Secondly, asymptomatic or mild infections will no longer be recorded as COVID cases. And again, they quote the CDC. As of May the 1st, 2021, the CDC transitioned from monitoring all reported vaccine breakthrough cases to focus, focusing on and identifying and investigating only hospitalised or fatal cases due to any cause. This shift will help maximise the quality of data collected, blah, blah, blah. So this is an excuse. Now, the, the off Guardian summarise this uh, brilliantly. They consider three people. Person A has not been vaccinated. They test positive for COVID using a PCR test at 40 cycles. And despite having no symptoms, they are officially a COVID case. Person B has been vaccinated. They test positive at only 28 cycles, spend six weeks bedridden with a high fever. Because they never went to hospital and didn't die, they are not a COVID case. Person C, who was also vaccinated, did die after weeks in hospital with a high fever and respiratory problems. Only their positive PCR test was at 29 cycles, so they are not officially a COVID case either. So you see the pattern here. They are going to show, simply by means of how they gather the data, that the vaccinated are protected and the and the unvaccinated are at risk. And it will be, like so many things with COVID, a lie. Yes, well, let's uh, move on then to uh, John Rappaport. And uh, well, the headline is shocker. Why is the substance in the COVID, uh, in the Moderna COVID vaccine? Yeah, John Rappaport's blog, No More Fake News, always worth a look. He's excellent on uh, medical matters. Uh, so he was looking at the Moderna vaccine and he, he found a reference to something called SM102. I'll not uh, take your time with the uh, full chemical explanation. Um, and it's in the vaccine. And when he goes to check the safety data, it says, quote, for research use only, not for human or veterinary use. That's a bit odd, don't you think? Uh, David, I can tell you that we've got other viewers who've been researching this particular aspect and they say to go read the, the Cayman data sheet itself is a must because it is so shocking what it says about the, the substance being used. 
Uh, okay, and uh, well, we've got to be encouraged because there's not enough people uh, getting vaccinations. So now we're using London taxis to encourage us. Or are they taking us there even? Well, yes, you're both. This is the Vaxi Taxi. The Vaxi Taxi is coming for you. If you are down and out, if you are, uh, if you have, shall we say, questionable um, right to be in the UK, if you're living on the streets, if you're in any sort of distress at all, and you're not in regular contact with the authorities, well, the Vaxi Taxi will come and get you. Um, and you can have the job at a special pop-up vaccine centre or even in the back of the taxi. Uh, that, would be, that would be lovely too. Uh, Dr Raymond here, you pictured, uh, told Sky News, we're really thinking about the homeless and rough sleepers and those who have uncertain immigration status or people with communication difficulties, physical difficulties or no access to the internet. We do not need to know about your immigration status or any other information of that sort. Uh, and you do not need an NHS number. We're simply here to help. So there doesn't seem to be any assessment of risk with your background or pre-existing conditions or anything like that. We're just going to get the shot in your arm um, and then presumably throw you out the back of the taxi uh, and hope that there's no serious um, adverse reaction, including, as we remember from the early stages, people were suffering... Um, uh, allergic reactions and these were immediately life-threatening so how is it safe to be vaccinating someone in the back of a taxi and not having any equipment available should they suffer a serious uh, allergic reaction and uh, go into uh, cardiac arrest it's, it's got to be criminal if if that type of medical support is not available, which again, the NHS standard operating procedures talk about that there's got to be the anaphylactic teams available on site, then this is criminal activity by the government. Um, right, so we'll just uh, briefly mention this. Uh, Israel is lifting almost, of its, uh, almost all pandemic restrictions on the 1st of June, uh, and that includes the use of the so-called Green Pass, David. Um, I'm quite sure this is because of the the, the, the claimed success of the uh, vaccine rollout, but nonetheless, uh, I would probably expect to see all this stuff back again in September or so. Well, they were pushing very hard, and there was so much uh, criticism coming from so many, uh, so many fronts in Israel about the actual effect of the vaccine program and the loss of liberty and the introduction of um, show me your papers um, type passports. Uh, that uh, there seems to have been some sort of uh, re reverse in the direction of travel here. And while I'm very relieved to see it, um, you may be right, it may simply be a pause. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, let's uh, briefly move on to, uh, on to this. Uh, this is the independence. Uh, US intelligence found researchers at Wuhan lab were hospitalized shortly before coronavirus outbreak report claims. Now, this, of course, is... Uh, pushing the narrative of this so-called gain of function, that, that uh, uh, the, uh, the coronavirus was as a result of research being done in the Wuhan lab funded by Fauci and so on, uh, and that uh, they created uh, an extremely virulent and dangerous virus, which is, uh, subsequently did the rounds and killed uh, 3 million or th what are th 300 million people uh, worldwide, whatever the number is now. Um, and of course, uh, well, is that true? I don't think the figures uh, stack up on that. And as we just pointed out earlier on, there's research suggesting the coronavirus was doing the rounds uh, before 
uh, the acclaimed begin, beginning of the whole thing in December uh, or November uh, 2019. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, this is what it says. Research, U.S. intelligence found that three researchers at a Wuhan laboratory became so sick just before the coronavirus pandemic began that they were hospitalized. A report says the Trump administration and Republicans have pushed the lab leak theory of the virus escaping China's Wuhan Institute of Virology throughout the pandemic. Current and former officials familiar have expressed differing opinions on the evidence of the November 2019 sickness of the lab researchers. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, which is where this originally came out, one official said that the intelligence came from an international partner of the US, but it needed further investigation. But another person told the newspaper that the intelligence was stronger than that. And so yet again, David, we have another intelligence leak. And I've got to ask, was Yellowcake not enough? What about Skripal, Russiagate? How many intelligence leaks do we need before the penny drops? And the other thing is here, this was, as they've said in the article, a Trump narrative. Um, and this is the same Trump that the mainstream press was reeling against for the last six years. Uh, and so, you know, it seems to me, David, that we have it both ways or we're aiming to have it both ways um, at, with every possible narrative here. So is it, is it a virulent, deadly virus uh, that was leaked from the, the lab or does this, do the statistics suggest quite the opposite? It wasn't any more serious than, for example, the flu um, and that the deaths that have arisen as a result of it have been very similar to what we see during a normal flu season. Um, is it, are we going to suddenly believe the intelligence agencies that have been pumping out these so-called reports on various subjects over the last number of years that have proven to be utterly false whenever there's a geopolitical agenda at work here? What <laughs> How do we make an assessment of this? I, I don't know. I don't know what the story is here, because you see people like, like Rand Paul in the United States are, are bringing up the issue that there was contractual links between the United States and, and, the, and the Wuhan lab. And those contractual links seem to be in the general area of research. Um, but there's a long way from that to... In, in research or concerning coronaviruses, but there's a long way from that to the um, uh, it, it's it's a weapons grade material that's been released narrative that uh, some are trying to push. And you're quite right in pointing out that the statistics just don't back this up. Uh, I thought the the areas covered uh, by yourself and Patrick on Friday uh, showed that most effectively. Because as you look at the figures from the cremations and burials across the United Kingdom, it just doesn't exist. The pandemic's not there. This is what the statistics are showing, and that's not compatible with it being some sort of weapon uh, that's been accidentally released, which seems to be what's been suggested here. Yes. Now, uh, of course, uh, David, the uh, latest narrative is Indian. Indian variant is doing the rounds in the UK. We're going to have to look at local lockdowns again. Uh, we're going to have we've got surge testing going on in various parts of the country to try to identify where the Indian variant is going. Uh, we've got obviously people uh, studying other people's poo in order to do the same thing. Um, but uh, the Indians not very happy about it. So this is the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology uh, for the government of India, uh, and they've pushed out three advisories to curb what they describe as false news slash misinformation on coronavirus. So let's just have a look at one of them. Uh, the, uh, this invites reference to the advisory dated the 20th of the 3rd, 2020 and the 7th of the 5th, 2021, 
issued by the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology, Government of India, regarding curbing of false news, misinformation concerning coronavirus on social media platforms. And they're asking the social media platforms to take down any information uh, or any posts which suggest that the, uh, that uh, this latest variant B.1.617, uh, in fact, there's three variants uh, which are being labeled the Indian variants. Uh, so the Indian government apparently not very happy about it, David, uh, and they want that taken down. Yes, they do. Um, and uh, there also seems to be a big discrepancy between how the situation in India has been reported in the West and how it actually is in India. Uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, particularly uh, well-lined either. Uh, but uh, in Scotland, we had Nicola Sturgeon responded to this, as, as she does to every chance to virtue signal and be politically correct. Um, and she, she decided that she wasn't going to uh, use the, the term Indian variant. And she explained in a news conference she was going to use the term uh, April 02 variant. Uh, this lasted 20 minutes till she forgot and used the term Indian variant in the same news conference. But there we go. Uh, but this was uh, seized upon both by the Indians in Scotland who thought it was a silly gesture and uh, didn't think the name change was uh, particularly smart and thought it was a bit laughable. And indeed by Scottish Twitter. And you see here one of the memes. John Wayne says to be careful that we are in April 02 territory now. Um, I thought that was quite good. Yes. Uh, now, what's going on with uh, with masks? Well, this this shot here is from a motorway service station, and um, uh, one of the motor ones. And I was really struck by this because it's a big sign as you go in to to get your cup of coffee, uh, and there's a woman masked and and looking suspiciously to uh, the side of her eye, and the text reads, "If you can wear one." Masks, if you can wear one, do. If you can't wear one, we understand. If you won't wear one, please don't come in. And I was, this is, this is astonishing. It's not the masking that they're wanting. It's the compliance. Mm. Don't come in here if you're thinking unapproved thoughts about coronavirus. It doesn't matter if you're not wearing a mask. As long as you're, you know, suitably believing the narrative. This is, this is just, uh, we don't want people who don't think the way we think. It's remarkable. Um, uh, but uh, we've got a contrasting notice here. Yes, and, and to show, now this, this, this illustrates, and uh, if, if Costa Coffee are watching, I want you to listen to the next bit, lads. This illustrates the fact that against the same government advice and government legal constraints, there are different ways of handling yourself. So. While Moto was excluding people who didn't think the right way, this organisation had an entirely different response to the same legislative environment. It says, customer notice, exemption positive face covering policy. We value all of our customers equally and we are against any form of discrimination. In line with government guidelines, we cannot legally ask you about your medical condition, nor ask you to see, uh, ask to see an exemption card. Therefore, if we see you without a mask, we will assume you're exempt and welcome you inside to support our business. Thank you. That, Costa Coffee, is how it should be done. Yeah, well, excellent. I, I, that's what we need to say is, is it's looking at the so-called rules and finding a way to carry on normal life by uh, 
using the rules appropriately. Uh, yes. Uh, now, David, obviously at the weekend then, as we advertised last week, there was a peaceful gathering at George Square. Um, and uh, so tell us about it. Yes, uh, I was invited along by uh, some lovely people in uh, uh, Unite for Truth. And um, this was a gathering of lots of different groups into um, a, a very um, happy and jolly, good-natured event in George Square in Glasgow. We see here uh, one of the uh, uh, ladies attending this with an umbrella with many messages of um, uh, truth uh, written on it. And another lady here advertising the UK column Yellow Card uh, website. Good honour for that. Um, and it was uh, it was a, a very uh, positive event, and uh, it was uh, there was a lot of information um, put across, a lot of important points raised, uh, serious points raised. But it was also it was also jolly and positive, and there was some music, and there was uh, a lot of interaction with everybody hugging and getting to know one another, and it was really quite lovely. We've got a couple of clips. Well, well, look, David, uh, I don't know what your view is on this, but it's now, <laughs> we're now only halfway through the programme and it's five to two, so I think if you don't mind, we'll leave the clips to extra time, if that's okay with you. Oh, no problem at all. Okay, right. Uh, let's uh, say if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community, and uh, there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and do also share our material on the various platforms. Indeed. Well, I have got a little video clip here which was sent through to us. At the moment, we know that the government, the Behavioural Insights Unit, SAGE, has been ramping up fear and anxiety in the British public. Um, step in Panorama and the BBC. So thank you very much for the eagle-eyed person that spotted this little advert. It's only 20 seconds. You've accepted artificial intelligence into your life. Thanks for handing over control. This makes everything so much better, easier, and now life may never be the same. Are you scared yet? Human. A Panorama special, Wednesday at 7.30 on BBC One. Well, that's, that says it all. The BBC using taxpayers' money to throw in more stress and anxiety at the public, but we should expect it from the BBC, of course. Uh, nicer things. Um, this subject of sanity and clarity is coming into the UK column. Another email here with uh, somebody saying, thank you for bringing me sanity and clarity these last months in the middle of the most insane period of time this country has ever seen. So these, these are really nice emails because it's telling us that uh, what we're putting out is helping um, our viewers and listeners, and we're, we're really pleased about that. We enjoyed receiving this, so Sky News, UK total second dose is 21,659,783. Uh, who's telling us? Well, it's our Prime Minister. And how do we know? Because he's wearing a badge which says that he is Prime Minister. That's in case he forgets when he gets up in the morning. So don't know who's the bigger disaster, whether it's Boris Johnson or possibly that's an F-35 behind him. Uh, but uh, thank you for that one. And this one is very, very interesting because somebody who's done a lot of research has, has found that the US Food and Drug Administration Agency has been is now stating that M excuse me, mRNA is actually a gene therapy. Uh, so you can do the research for yourself. This document is real. 
It says currently mRNA is considered a gene therapy product by the FDA, unlike certain gene therapies and it, uh, that irreversibly alter cell DNA and could act as a source of side effects. mRNA-based medicines uh, are designed to not irreversibly change cell DNA. That's the claim. This is Moderna making this claim. And if you read on a little bit, it says something very interesting because it, it intimates that the clinical trials have not yet been done to prove the statement that's just been made, that this is a, this is a product which uh, doesn't permanently change um, the cells. So we'll leave you to have a look at that. Uh, we've got this one here. Thank you uh, for the person who sent this in. A little while ago, we showed a heavily redacted document that was all about emergency planning in UK from a medical uh, point of view. We asked why they were so shy. Well, this was some information about how that emergency planning system works. Uh, we've got this um, person saying to us, did I really hear in the Manchester Vaccination Centre clip that we played last week, one of the staff saying, fingers crossed, you won't be talking about side effects of the vaccine. Well, uh, the, uh, the vaccine staff certainly did say, fingers crossed, and that's repeated several times. I'm just going to put up here that the full clip, which is 15 minutes, but it does contain more information, will be up on the UK Column website tonight alongside with a supporting article. And, uh, well, if you don't agree with uh, getting jabbed, you are now definitely a refusenik, according to the Daily Mail. Uh, well done to you, Mike and uh, Patrick, for identifying what an insult the refusenik really is. Uh, but here we are with troops being threatened that uh, you better take it or we're not going to consider you fit to do your job. And that's a disciplinary matter. And clearly the establishment's uh, worried. <laughs> Chelsea Clinton has apparently been dragged up uh, by this is the uh, Catholic press agency reporting uh, that in a an online Vatican conference exploring the mind, body and soul. Chelsea Clinton called for the regulation of anti-vaccine content on social media. So I was very encouraged by that because it shows progress. Yes. But we're making progress, I think. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, David, uh, BBC here from quite a few years ago now. I think this was 2007. Uh, humanity is the greatest challenge. Yes. So this is just to put the next little bit in context. Um, our dear friends at the BBC have for a very long time uh, been explaining how the biggest threat uh, to the world is the fact that there are far too many people. Right. Um, now, just, we, just before... We can't cope. Yeah, sorry. Just before well, you move on to the, uh, next, to the next section, I just want to interject with... Uh -huh with this to show that it's not just the BBC, because this is, uh, the Boris, this is Boris Johnson's old blog. Uh, this was also published in 2007, and the article is called Global Population Control. Uh, and I suggest that everybody goes and reads this, because this is our current prime minister and his views. And of course, he's talking about his father's books on population control. But global overpopulation is the real issue, is his opinion, David. Yeah, absolutely. And the previous one was talking about uh, averting unspeakable consequences. So the whole the whole view has been up until now that uh, population control is the biggest threat we face. Uh, it's urgent. It's overdue. We must do something. It's a crisis. Um, well, not anymore. Uh, BBC now report 
Uh, how do you convince people to have babies? Stephanie Hegarty here. Uh, in the past two weeks, two global, two global superpowers have had to face an unsettling reality. Census results in the US and China indicate that both countries are likely to start shrinking in population much sooner than they thought. The thorny problem with no easy solution uh, some like Russia have tried throwing money at it, offering parents generous cash incentives to have children. But policies like this rarely work in a vacuum. Parents need a system that offers uh, much more. So how can a government convince people to start having babies? And they show a graph. And the graph is fascinating. The graph shows... Now, bear in mind that, that, that population replacement um, is, is generally at 2.1 um, children per woman. So we see here that Sweden, the UK, the US, and China, and South Korea are all at uh, below population replacement levels, and India is barely at population replacement level. So there is no population growth outside of Africa anywhere. So the population bomb that's been touted by globalists for decades as the big threat um, just got defused, just doesn't exist. But the BBC are going to tell us how we can convince people to have more children. Would you like to see the BBC's answer? It's a lovely one. Here we go. One, give parents affordable childcare. So more tax and spend from the government. We're going to tax people. We're not going to worry too much where that's coming from. And we're going to encourage other people to raise your children because that'll fix things. Make work more flexible. So don't think that you're going to stay at home and look after your own children. No, you're going to be forced out to work just to make ends meet to pay the taxes that pay for the first bit. And three, put men to work at home. So no idea of having the traditional division of labour within a family. You're not going to be allowed to have that. We're going to have to change everything uh, and uh, force men to do more around the house because that's the real problem here. So just pathetic from the BBC, as usual. Um, but they did at least have to admit that the scare story they've been running for decades no longer exists. Uh, but there is a bit of a scare story here, isn't there? Because the economic implications of this are huge. With shrinking populations, uh, fewer younger people in a population and a vastly increasing elderly population relative to the uh, working age population, um, the uh, implications in terms of care for, elderly, for elderly people become significant. Um, the pensions liabilities become significant. What, what are, what's briefly, David, do you think are the economic implications of uh, falls, falls in, product, in population levels of this, of this kind? Economic, the economic implications are no one will, will retire before 70, basically. We'll have to work longer. Uh, there's no other way around it. The government will tell us that what we need to do is to import a, a new, younger, more vibrant population, but that won't fix things. Uh, what we actually need to do is reconstruct the family because reconstructing the family will reconstruct the generation of children. And oh, while we're at it, perhaps we should stop killing them in the womb. That would be a good idea too. Um, okay, well, let's uh, continue with economic matters and inflation. Now, of course, this uh, was announced last Wednesday, I believe, but uh, we kept it for Monday because I knew David would enjoy this segment. Um, and of course, inflation uh, going up. Uh, but we don't need to worry. Uh, inflation doubled, but I mean, it's understandable why inflation doubled. I think it went to 1.7%. It's back up to levels 
that are pre-pandemic. Uh, but we don't need to worry because here's uh, Andrew Bailey. He had been giving evidence to the uh, to a House of Lords Select Committee on Tuesday last week, and he said. Our forecast at the moment is that we do expect inflation to pick up in the next month or so, really. Uh, it's been under 1% for my entire time as governor. Every opportunity I've had to write a letter to the chancellor to explain why I've had to take, because this is the, uh, the Bank of England, of course, is notionally responsible for keeping uh, inflation at 2%. And if it goes above 2% or below 2%, uh, the governor of the Bank of England has to write to the treasurer and explain why. So he's been doing lots of that. Uh, but he went on to say, uh, we don't see uh, that sort of, in a sense, momentum continuing forward at that pace at all. So he's claiming that inflation is not going to start to increase uh, any higher. Uh, he said, at the moment, we don't see uh, that evidence, but we will watch it, of course. We must do very carefully. Now, David, the point here is, why has inflation suddenly taken ahead north. Uh, um, and the reason is because people have started spending money again. And so I just thought we would have a look at the velocity of money graph. Now, unfortunately, this is uh, US based. Uh, we, I'm not sure that there's a UK equivalent, but I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the situation is very similar uh, in the UK. Uh, velocity of money, of course, is, uh, you know, the how, how many times, say, for example, a unit of currency, a pound or a dollar is used uh, to buy a good over a period of a set period of time. And of course, the more active the economy is, the higher the velocity of money, the, the less active it is, uh, the velocity of money collapses. And we can see that in, on this graph, 2020 came along uh, and the velocity of money went off a cliff. So, uh, you know, the question then, David, is um, where is inflation going to go? Because if people start spending money again, as they seem to be doing, uh, it can really only go in one direction. Yes, to the moon. Um, the, the, the idea that the Bank of England are watching this carefully is deeply funny. The Bank of England uh, are engaged in um, making sure that they are watching something else. They're looking the other way. They're constantly manipulating the figures because so much that the government does, so much of the government spending is linked to inflation, you know, pensions, etc., um, so they've got a huge incentive to underestimate the, the rate of inflation, which they do on a regular basis. Now, there's inflation everywhere. There's house price inflation, which is vast. Uh, there is huge increases in construction steelwork, construction lumber, for example. Uh, and we're getting worrying signs of uh, increasing unemployment and increasing job vacancies in economies across the world, that's a sign of, of serious inflation starting to kick in as well because of the dislocation it causes in the economy. So uh, I don't trust the Bank of England over this, but yeah, the velocity of money is going to be key. And uh, here we have um, City Intelligence report from the Telegraph saying that consumers are flooding back into the shops. Uh, the households are sitting on a £200 billion pot of savings and there's clear proof that they are prepared to spend it. Uh, and there's going to be a rambunctious economic rebound. So that would suggest that inflation is on the way. Uh, but now, yeah, go ahead. this next graph here, um, th this is from the Mises Institute. And I just want to explain what it actually means for the ordinary man and woman in the street. Um, inflation is paper money printing 
and you're devaluing of the, the, the value of money. It used to be that money was, however tenuously, linked to gold, which couldn't be printed, and there was a limit on this. And the gold standard, the last vestiges of it, were, were removed in 1971. This graph is uh, called the, the Gini ratio, the gross income inequality ratio, uh, where um, zero in this graph at the bottom would be perfect equality and one where it would be where one person gets all the cash. So as the graph goes up, uh, income inequality gets worse. As the graph goes down, it gets better. And you see here the pivot point was exactly where we came off the gold standard in 1971. At that point, uh, funny money was ruling, and the people who were in control of the financial sector did very well. Income inequality increased. It had been decreasing for decades. It reversed. Uh, and it will get much worse again under an inflationary regime where the people who get the money first will benefit from it and those who, who see it later on, pensioners, people on a fixed income, the poor, that sort, of, that, that, that sort of person, they will get relatively poorer. That's what it does. Uh, but this is also what it does, David. Well, if they really lose control, then we've got the Zimbabwe option. Uh, it's been done in many other countries, Israel for one, Germany famously. It can happen to advanced economies uh, uh, and it can happen to uh, more, um, more rural and agricultural-based economies. It just takes enough money printing. Here we see the $100 trillion Zim note. And there used to be, as you went into South Africa, a bin for these things because uh, they didn't want the Zim dollars um, uh, flooding and, and filling up all the waste paper baskets. There was a special bin for it as you went into the country. Uh, well, look, just to, just to end this section off, if anybody thinks that can't happen here, let's go back to Andrew Bailey, because he said this while he was speaking to the House, Lord, House of Lords as well. Uh, I would not wish to suggest that we've hit the limits of quantitative easing. We keep that under careful review, but there are no natural limits. David, no natural limits to QE. Keep it pumping, keep it going, uh, and very soon we will also have a 100 trillion pound note. I'm looking forward to the day. Yeah, it's, it's coming. They're going to do it to us. I think they are. These people don't know what they're doing. Oh, uh, well, I think they do know what they're doing. Well, anyway. th those controlling the money are controlling the politics, that's for sure. Um, now, uh, we have to go back in history again. We've been doing this a little bit. Uh, here's Michael Gove. Uh, he was speaking in mid-2019, and in fact, he made uh, written comments on this uh, much earlier. So back in 2019, uh, he was uh, uh, the, um, the farming minister. I can't remember exactly which uh, title he held. Uh, as we leave the EU, he said, we've uh, uh, a historic opportunity to deliver a farming policy which works for the whole industry. Uh, that's what he was talking about. He was talking about creating public goods. He was talking about the money that we were no longer having to pay to the common agricultural policy. And what were we going to do with all this money? Was it going to go into food production? Absolutely not. It was going to go into turning farming land back into wild flower meadow, wood path, woodlands, footpaths, and this kind of thing. Um, so the government launched uh, a whole program on sustainable farming. Um, and uh, this is what they said, environmental land management scheme to incentivize sustainable farming practices, create habitats for nature recovery and establish new woodland to help tackle climate change. There was nothing in this about farming. There was nothing in this about growing food. 
which of course is the purpose of farming. Uh, direct payments will be reduced fairly, uh, starting from the 2021 basic payment scheme year, with the money released being used to fund new grants and schemes to boost farmers' productivity and reward environmental improvements. Uh, but they're not boosting farmers' productivity to produce food, they're boosting farmers' productivity to produce uh, public goods, as it was described. Um, so the, they, they were talking about three tiers of funding, sustainable farming in, incentive, uh, local nature recovery and landscape recovery. Uh, so going back to Gove for a second, he said the UK is uh, 30 to 40 years away from fundamental eradication of soil fertility. Well, we made the point not so long ago that this was a complete lie. This is when he was Environment Secretary in 2017. Um, and uh, we highlighted uh, the issue of do we only have uh, 60 harvests left? And Hannah Ritchie, uh, very much an expert in this area, uh, having had a look at soil quality in the UK and globally, making it very clear that the 60 harvest claim was absolutely false. Um, but David, uh, if we're heading towards uh, sustainable development in farming, um, that's not all that's going on in the farming industry. No, so we've picked up a few interesting stories on farming. Uh, the first one here is from the Northern Scot, which is a local paper from Elgin um, in North Scotland. And, uh, written by Eddie Galanders, a, a veteran uh, farming correspondent. Uh, and he writes, the land grab is set to intensify as prices are predicted to rise again. And he says the real drivers in the current market are non-farming businesses seeking to take advantage of the carbon sequestration offered by farms to reduce their carbon footprint and meet their net zero carbon targets. Uh, and buyers looking to take advantage of the incentives offered to invest in forestry. So this is all based on the global warming myth and based on government policy, but it's driving the economics of farming um, away from food production. Uh, he continues, um, last year the phenomenally successful Ellen-based craft beer producers Brewdog uh, bought 2,000 acres of grazing land near Loch Lomond, where the company plans to plant a million native and broadleaf trees uh, on 1,500 acres. Um, and it carried out peat restoration on the remaining 500 acres to reduce its carbon footprint of 17,951 tonnes of CO2 equivalent. It is also reported more recently that Brewdog has purchased um, the Kinrara estate near Aviemore, which is mostly grouse moor, and it plans to plant that as well. And it's happening worldwide. Bill Gates, Microsoft has recently launched a partnership with a large farming company in Australia to buy half a, mil half a million dollars worth of carbon credits in a drive to become carbon negative by 2030. Uh, sorry, so, David, just, just before you move on with that, the Bill Gates situation. Bill Gates, as we reported on this program recently, has now appeared in the top 100 landowner list in the United States because he's just bought a shed load of... Uh, of farming land in the US. Actually, there are about four or five different families have now appeared for the first time ever on the top 100 uh, landowner list in the United States. It was published a couple of weeks ago for exactly this reason. Um, and uh, well, this is bogus. It, totally. So you're, you're seeing um, uh, fake science driving uh, policies which are, are, are being presented as, as an environmental necessity, but are nothing of the sort. 
which are driven from the UN on downwards, whereby the ability of um, individuals who, who were born and brought up in an area to buy and own and farm the land is being removed and it's being assembled into ever larger corporate land holdings. And these corporate land holdings are not interested in food, they're interested in carbon and its reduction. Carbon would be us under this uh, category. Uh, they're also not interested in um, any sort of animal production. Animals are going to cease to exist as well in this brave new world. Uh, we see here an Oregon initiative would ban animal slaughter and breeding. So this is, this is an initiative IP13. People are trying to make this law. This is uh, Portland, Oregon, working for you. It would classify slaughter as aggravated abuse, redefine, redefine artificial insemination and castration as sexual assault. Uh, an Oregon ballot uh, initiative proposed for 2022 would effectively criminalise the farming of food animals in the state by classifying the slaughter as aggravated abuse, redefining uh, AI and castration, etc. The proposed Abuse, Neglect and Assault Exemption Modification and Improvement Act would delete all references to good animal husbandry from state statute and only allow a, an animal to be injured in cases of human self-defence. So you can have a burger, but only if you kill it in self-defence. Um, the, uh, a veterinarian spaying and neutering of household pets would still be exempt, well, at least for now. And when we go and search out uh, about Initiative Petition 13, how we end animal cruelty, uh, it does indeed say just this. This initiative would not ban the sale of meat, leather, fur. It would, however, radically change how everyone treats animals, including those who work in animal agriculture. It would create a system in Oregon where farmers were no longer exempt from animal cruelty laws. It would require that animals be allowed to live a truly good life, free from abuse, neglect and sexual assault, after the animal lives a full life and exits the world naturally. So this is specifically, incidentally, banned in the Bible. You don't eat anything that dies of its own... Um, of its own volition because it's diseased, right? So after it's died a natural death, um, it does not prohibit the farmer from processing and distributing that meat for consumption. So you can only eat meat from old cows who have died of natural causes. That's reassuring. And the little photograph you got there of a nice woman patting a cow, um, she's wearing a T-shirt. It says, Hail Satan. That seemed a bit odd. And, uh, well, it transpires that Hail Satan is a meat substitute product. Interesting choice of company name, don't you think, gentlemen? Yes. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> it's brilliant. No, so you, this is a meat substitute you, called, well, anyway, okay. But just uh, very briefly, David, because we are absolutely over time now. Uh, the government, uh, the BBC reporting this, was a government press release on this as well, uh, paying older farmers to retire. Yeah, so the, the, the problem with older farmers is, is they have this old-fashioned idea that they should be producing food. And we don't want that. Uh, we want younger farmers to be in there because they'll be more receptive to the new ideas of eco-friendly uh, public good farming rather than food farming. Uh, so the older farmers would be paid uh, between fifty and £100,000 to retire and free up the land for... Uh, younger people to take over. So that's the, the government's moving the old the old timers out because they have these pesky ideas that the, the purpose of farming is to feed the nation. 
and, and also the terminology is being changed, isn't it? Because in general, they don't want to talk about farming. They're talking about land managers, which gives us a better, an even better idea of where it's going. Yes. Uh, okay, David, uh, we're going to add... The, 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 final, the final slide today, the final slide today uh, is, I think, a beautiful summary of where we are with our scientific reliance on experts. Uh, we have here a, a, a two men, a one of the women rather, standing in the pouring rain with under the under their umbrellas, and the woman says, "Have you noticed it's raining?" And and the man replies, "How do you know? Are you a meteorologist?" I think that sums it up quite well. Quite well. <laughs> right. Okay. I think we're leaving it there, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for our audience today, wherever you are in the world. If you're somewhere unusual, please send us an email and let us know where you are. We, we know that there are many people across uh, the larger countries, but if you're somewhere uh, a little more obscure, we'd like to know where you are and how you got listening to UK Column. And a very big thank you to everybody that's been supporting us. I understand that uh, some cars were driving around in Cornwall over the weekend with uh, UK Column logos on and saying, honk if you support us and there were quite a lot of horns honking so uh, this is encouraging to see don't let the bbc get away with it don't let the daily mail get away with it don't let your mps get away with it um action conquers fear we'll leave it there thanks very much be back Bye. in 10 minutes on the uh, on the live stream yeah. for extra and otherwise back 1 p.m as usual on wednesday bye-bye <laughs>